Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Scripture reading this morning is the first chapter of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, 
You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired." You shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Thank you so much. I appreciate the reading of the text for the singing of songs, for the extending of fellowship as we gather around the word of God as a family of families. Isaiah begins with these words, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Many affirm that the context in which Isaiah structures this chapter is a court scene where an indictment is brought against the nation of Israel for violating the vassal treaty, the conditions of the covenant, the conditions of the law. Here is the judgment that accompanies what is transpiring. I'm wanting to make sure that we treat Isaiah in context. The northern tribes are under assault by the Assyrian Empire. The empire now presses forward into the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. As a consequence of rejecting God's word and despising his law, which we saw in Second Chronicles 36 as well as Isaiah chapter 5, King Uzziah lives with leprosy and the nation will be carried off into exile. Everything is dark. King Uzziah and the nation of Judah are reflections of each other, just as King Uzziah, so also the nation. The world surrounding Isaiah is a populated and inhabited world. Isaiah's message is singular and tied tightly into a singular idea. The nation has failed to keep the conditions of the law, which is the vassal treaty. But God extends to them hope as he fulfills the seed promise of Genesis 3.15. He fulfills the royal gift covenant given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The nation, the individuals, are called to trust in the Lord. That is a theme that runs throughout the book of Isaiah. In fulfilling the royal gift, Jesus will keep all the conditions of the vassal treaty and thus become the beneficiaries of all of its blessing. So as dark as these moments are for the nation, they are irrevocably lost. They will go into exile. Nothing can stop that. The individuals within that nation can continue to trust in Yahweh. They can be saved, even though they will go into exile. When we look at chapter 1, we realize that it is perhaps a summary of the entire 
book of Isaiah. The first six chapters of Isaiah serve as an introduction to the entire book. Chapter 1 is a concentration of all this instruction. What is interesting in verses 19 and 20, and it perhaps summarizes best the message itself, and we'll, we'll look at verse 18 in context, come now, let us reason together. But then verse 19 says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Huge idea summarizes the book in its totality. Eat or be eaten. You will either receive what God is doing and trust him or you will be destroyed. What is also interesting about the book of Isaiah is how it reflects this idea of a singular story with Jesus at the center. We've noted in our introduction how there are 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters are chapters of judgment. Interspersed is the word of hope. In the next 27 chapters, 40 through 66, you have a reflection of the New Testament, a testament of hope. What is interesting about chapter 1, as it, as it considers to be a summary of the entire book, in verse 31 it says, And the strong shall be like an oak whose leaves withers and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. That parallel idea is then found in chapter 66, verse 24, where it reads, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So chapter 1 in Isaiah is a summary of the entire book, the entire message, and we see that. We read that. When we read Isaiah, the reader begins in chapter 1, and we heard Mike read that chapter. When you read chapter 1, it starts like a cold shower. I don't know if you've ever taken a cold shower, and I don't mean a slightly modified lukewarm shower. I mean a cold shower, or perhaps you've jumped in a cold body of water. Well, when you jump in that water, it takes your breath away. It is so sharp, it is so dramatic, and yet if you can handle it, you'll find that it is ultimately refreshing. And as dark as chapter 1 is, as bleak as it is, as judgmental as it is, inside of that chapter is hope. And you can walk away from chapter 1 refreshed. There is this stark rebuke of the nation, but that has to be set in its context. And that's what I'd like us to do as we consider chapter 1. And before we follow the actual structure of the passage, I want to put the gravity of their rejection in its proper context. And thus, I want to begin with this idea of the covenant name of God. There are several titles given to God in chapter 1, and they're found throughout the book of Isaiah. What is also of importance is noting this idea of Yahweh. We know from Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 6 that the name Yahweh is his personal name. It's the name by which he is known. It is his relational name. It is the name of the covenant. It is a name of promise. We know God as Yahweh. It is like our surname in that it identifies. We carry that name and we are to honor that name. Isaiah uses this name so extensively. If you were to take the name Yahweh as it occurs in Isaiah, it's so extensive it has to be measured. In chapter 1 alone, it occurs 12 times, Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Well, why does the prophet keep reminding the people, and all prophets do this, of the name Yahweh? It reminds them of promise. It reminds them of the relationship that they are in with God. It is inside of this covenant 
that God has established with them, this relationship that the nation of Judah is being charged. There are several titles used within this first chapter that follow all the way through the book of Isaiah. And the titles themselves remind Israel, remind Judah of whom they are rebelling against, of whom they are rejecting, of whom they are disobeying. Not only is a relational name inside of the covenant, Yahweh, but it is often coupled with his title and position over the hosts of heaven. The name Lord of hosts, or some variant of it, appears 284 times in the Old Testament. This, the idea of hosts positions God in a light that I don't know if we often think of him in, which is a military light. light. And you think of a nation like Judah, a nation like Assyria, in the context of warring nations, and a besieged city, a land occupied, and the title is fitting. Who is fighting in our behalf? Yahweh of hosts. The one who has at his disposal all of created resources. That God is fighting in our behalf. The occurrence of this title, the Lord of hosts, happens in the first section, and then in chapters 40 through 66, his occurrence is negligible. So the idea of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the Lord who has behind him all of this military might is positioned in the first 39 chapters. And why? Well, in the first 39 chapters, you have Assyria taking away the 10 northern tribes. You have Assyria pushing down south into Judah and Benjamin. You have the transferring of Assyria to Babylon. In the midst of all that, who is fighting in their behalf? The Lord of hosts. It is the Lord of hosts who saves his people and destroys his enemy. He is the hero. We all want that person to ride in who saves the day. Well, Yahweh of hosts is the one who's going to ride in and save the day. So as bleak as our current circumstances might appear to some and many, the Lord of hosts will indeed save the day. A third title inside of chapter 1 occurs in verse 4. He is the Holy One of Israel. The God who cut covenant with this nation is intrinsically above them. Yahweh is the altogether apart one. There is no one and nothing like him. This becomes celebrated in chapters 40 and following, where he is described as, I am the Lord and there is no one or nothing beside me. And all the nations are like a drop in a bucket. The God whom we serve, the God who has cut covenant, the God in whom we are in relationship with is a God who is intrinsically, qualitatively different. And it is that God who condescended and established a relationship with that nation. That is the God whom they have despised and rejected. The Holy One of Israel occurs 12 times in chapters 1 through 39 and 14 times in chapters 40 through 66. Isaiah dominates the usage of that title in all the other Old Testament books. It is only used outside of Isaiah five times. So the God who has established covenant with this nation is a transcendent God. He is the Holy One of Israel. And this is what makes their sin so egregious. But our chapter does not end there. One more title occurs in verse 24. He is the mighty one of Jacob, the mighty one of Israel. The title itself only occurs six times in the Hebrew text. And three of those are inside of Isaiah. And what's absolutely amazing, and, and the reason why we want to 
consider the name and titles of God in chapter 1 and Isaiah, it is because it is that God that this nation has rebelled against. But concerning this God, unlike all other gods, this God speaks. And as a God who speaks, the people are to listen. Look at verse 10, and we see this refrain occurring throughout. Verse 10, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching, to the Torah of our God, to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So Yahweh, this covenant-cutting, keeping God, the God of promise, a God in whom they are in relationship, the God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, the holy one of Israel, that God speaks. And as he speaks, the nation is to obey. The word instruction found in verse 10 is the word Torah. It occurs 10 times in Isaiah. I want to read just two verses which celebrate and accent this idea that God has spoken, and as God speaks, he is to be obeyed. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, the Bible says, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass, collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected Torah. They have rejected teaching. They have rejected law. They have rejected instruction from the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 8, verse 16 through 20, verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the Torah among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And then jumping down to verse 19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Why? Because God has spoken. Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Thus, it is inside of this covenant, this relationship, that the nation of Judah, which we read in chapter 1, is charged. And why are they charged? Because they were to hear and give ear to Yahweh. Rather than obey, they chose to rebel. They chose to forsake. They chose to despise and provoke. They chose to turn themselves away from him. It is this God that has cut a covenant with the nation of Israel. It is this God who has condescended and welcomed sinners into his presence. He is inviting them to come to him. And it is in this context Isaiah brings a scathing rebuke against Judah. The depth of their rejection of him shocks the reader. Their response stands in stark contrast to who God is. When we read our Bibles and we see who God is, God is Yahweh. He's a God of promise. He's a God who cuts covenant. He's a God who has condescended. He's a transcendent God. He is a holy God. He is God who has at his disposal all the assets of the created order, that God condescended and made a relationship with us. And what have we done with it? We have turned our backs on him. And yet he has condescended and he has reached out to us. Who would do this? Who would reject this kind of offer? Well, we would do such a thing. We would reject just as they have. The second thing we see is this scathing rebuke against Judah. 
there are two things done inside this passage. The first is they're descriptive. We have noted already how you have this court scene taking place. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, verse 2, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. This is a citation of Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Isaiah forms his introduction to the style of the song of Moses. And he personifies heaven and earth. He says, gather in and listen to what the heavens and earth have to say concerning this matter. He's going to muster together all the witnesses against their transgression, against their disobedience. Oh, how shocking that day indeed is and will be when we stand accused before God. Thank you for Jesus. But here they are before him naked. There is this legality, this accusation, this challenge and the evidence offered as to the conclusions drawn. There is no hope for them. The nation is described as being the children of God. However, they are rebellious and they do not know Yahweh. And their rebellion is amplified in the following verse. Sinful nation laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. How graphic in verse 4. Verses 5 through 6, their rebellion is like an untreated illness, much like King Uzziah's leprosy. Even though the symptoms and the root cause can both be treated, those rebels refuse and appear to enjoy the abuse. And as a consequence of their rebellion, they continue to impact the entire nation. Foreign nations ravage, pillage, and plunder the country. There are land occupied, cities are burned, land lies desolate. And the only silver lining is that Yahweh has allowed a remnant to survive. We read in verse 9, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Nothing but scorched earth, nothing but a pile of ash. But God. But God. Chapter 5, when we read the, the story of the vineyard, brings out this same imagery where God is careful and attentive as a vine dresser. And the vineyard, however, continues to reject him. God has done everything necessary for the nation to prosper, but they have rejected him. When you read Isaiah 1, it is easy to read our condition, our state, our nation into the descriptives. But I would caution us in drawing the parallel. Yes, like Israel, like all nations, we are rebellious, sinful, diseased, and defeated people. Yes, and like Israel, and like all nations, we are under the intrinsic judgment of God on all sinful and rebellious actions that reject him and reject his ownership of them and us. And like Israel, like all nations, there is this gracious invitation to believe that we will see and to be saved from our own sinful rebellion against him. But unlike Israel, and this is so important as we read the Old Testament text, we as a nation and no nation is a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy, a God-ruled nation, and they were under the conditions of that theocracy, which is a vassal treaty, the law, the commandments, the law of Moses. Thankfully, as we will see, Jesus will do for us and become for us what neither they nor us could do or become. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that royal gift. And as the fulfiller of the royal gift, the seed promise, Jesus will keep the vassal treaty as the true Israel. And because he has done what is necessary in complete and perfect obedience to that law, 
he receives the blessing. And because we are in him, we likewise receive those blessings. But this is their description. They are rebellious child. They are in occupied land. They are diseased body from top to tail. Then he moves in verse 12 with their deception. The language of verse 10 is repugnant. They are described as Sodom and Gomorrah. He identifies the people as such. He will speak of the nation as an unfaithful and whorish spouse. Verse 21. What's interesting about verses 12 and following, he speaks of feast days. He speaks of burnt offerings. Feast days and burnt offerings control the calendar for the nation. They kept such actions outwardly. And yet they are rebuked for their empty and vain and rebellious and rejecting heart. All of their religious posturing was nothing but empty acts of a whorish spouse. As we read this, as they read this, it was to strike them. It was to cause them to reel, to step back. It would not matter how many coats of paint you applied to the wood. It was rotten in its core and would ultimately fail. No matter how much perfume you put on the pig, it is still a pig. The nation could do nothing to change itself. The people in person could believe, but the nation was destined for exile. If we were under this law, our own rottenness would show itself. We are rotten and incapable of keeping the law and pleasing God. If we do not come to Jesus... We are equally under the judgment and rebuke of God. Yet despite this rebellion, Yahweh appeals to his people to receive his mercy and grace. If it wasn't for God's condescending mercy and grace, all would would be lost but God. When you and I read chapter 1, and I appreciate deeply how the chapter was read, we felt the weight of what was being said. The nation is being rebuked. And yet in the midst of this, notice verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Verse 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. And then verse 18, come, come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Remember verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Yet those bloody hands shall become white as snow. Those bloody hands shall become like wool. Only God can do such things. There is hope in the midst of all this judgment. His appeal is to love the Lord your God and then, as a consequence, love your neighbor as yourself. The phrase in verse 18, reason together, has a tone of legal argument. Similar wording appears in Isaiah 43, verse 26. The language of that invitation is intentionally stark. It's contrasting two things. Though your sins are like red, they will become white like snow. Though they are red like scarlet, they will be like wool. The point is not that the sins will be covered up, though still retained. The metaphorical language must be allowed some flexibility and should not be pressed into a rigid 
mold. The people's sins will be removed and replaced by ethical purity. The sins that are now as obvious as the color red will be washed away. And the ones who are sinful will be transformed. But you must come. The word come occurs throughout Isaiah. And I think it's interesting how Isaiah uses this word. Notice three occurrences. First, we have verse 18 in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Come and let us walk together. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. The language and image are reflective of God walking in the garden to meet with Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Come and walk with me. That is the invitation that God extends to us, his people. The nation of Israel, on a national level, rejected that invitation. They would not walk with God. There were those within that nation who indeed did. But the invitation is come, come and walk with me. Walk with whom? Yahweh. Walk with whom? Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, the holy one of Israel, the one who speaks, come and walk. This gracious invitation is also reiterated by our Lord Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now listen carefully to verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus Christ reiterates what we have already read in Isaiah 1.18. Remember Revelation 22, verse 17, And the Spirit and bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who is a thirst, Come. Come now and let us reason together. Come now and let us walk together. Come into my presence. The same tension and duality of judgment and hope occurs in Matthew and Revelation just as it does in Isaiah. There is this intentional word play in verses 19 and 20. He invites us to eat, to come, to walk the good of the land. And if we refuse and we rebel, then we will be eaten by the sword. Only God can do what this passage says needs to be done. If you read Isaiah 1 without the promise of God, if you do not see somehow the hope that is in Christ Jesus, there is nothing but judgment, despair, and loss, but God. The last thing we see in verses 21 through 31 is hope, a word of promise. In this section, 21 through 31, there's a contrasting picture of what they are and do and of what God is and does. You'll notice, and it was brought out already, how verse 21 and 26 are in parallel, contrasting parallel, how the faithful city has become a whore, verse 26. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Verse 22, your silver has become dross. 
your best wine mixed with water. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. You have this contrasting picture. The summary statement is made in verses 28 and 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But the rebel, the sinner, shall be broken together and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. And then verses 29 through 31, we have this graphic depiction. The promise that we read in Isaiah 1 is this. Those who repent and believe shall be brought into his presence, but those who do not shall be removed into judgment. And that is the word of hope given to a nation that is irrevocably lost. If we come to him, we will find rest. If we do not, we will not. It is that simple. Judgment or hope? Believe or continue in your rebellion and sin and unbelief and you will be judged. What do we do with Isaiah chapter 1? Where do we go from here? Well, when we read Isaiah chapter 1, we have the scathing rebuke against the nation. Why? Because they have rejected God. They have rejected Yahweh, the God of the covenant. Thankfully for us, Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of that seed promise. Thankfully, we have fulfillment. He will keep the conditions of the law and thus receive the blessings in our behalf. That's why Romans 8.1 can say, There is therefore now no condemnation. You and I, as the people of God, do not sit in violation of that law because Jesus has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And although this is true, Our hearts are just as wicked as were the hearts of the nation. You read Isaiah 1 and you cannot help but be rebuked, but thankfully, Jesus. Jesus absorbs for us the wrath of God against us. And unless God does for us what we cannot do, all hope would indeed be lost. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, then you are under judgment. And only God can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus Christ receives that judgment in your behalf so that in him you can have life. The exhortation that we have from this text is simply this. You will either believe in Jesus and eat the good of the land or you will continue in your rejection of Jesus and be eaten by the sword. But the choice is yours. What will you do? As the people of God, we can rejoice in what we have in Jesus. And if you don't know him, we appeal to you Come and let us reason together. Come. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we look at the words in Isaiah 1. We consider the context in which they were uttered. It was a nation under judgment. And you graphically portray and communicate and visualize just how whorish and rebellious they are. Father, in the midst of that, you appeal to the people, to come and reason together. And although their sins be as scarlet red, they shall be white as wool. Only you can do that. That is what you have done for us in Jesus. You have removed from us our sins, and you have made us into the very righteousness of Christ. So, Father, we read a passage like this, and not to treat it lightly, but we read a passage like this, And we say, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am among a people of unclean lips. And yet, Jesus, 
Jesus has enabled us to stand before you without fear. We can approach you without judgment. We thank you for Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior from sin and death, I pray the Spirit of God would right now grab their heart and mind and cause them to realize how wicked they are, how lost they are, how broken they are, and they would come to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in him. We thank you in his name. Amen.